0: We launched Hytuk Talks exactly two years ago, in the midst of the 2020 Artsakh War. We began our show with a four-part series on Artsakh, discussing its geopolitics, its history, the struggle, and the realities it faces. And at the end of season one, we spoke with a journalist who documented the chemical weapons used on Artsakh's people and land by Azerbaijan, further illustrating the horror of Azerbaijan's violence on the people of Artsakh and Armenia. But as bad as it was, and became, we still maintain the hope that things will get better. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the enemy is not interested in international laws or peace, but only in their total conquest, enslavement, and displacement of the Armenians of Artsakh and Armenia. An aggressive militarization along the Republic of Armenia's eastern borders after handing away much of Artsakh's lands that protected the Republic of Armenia, as well as our unwillingness to deter through military and diplomatic means has enabled the fascist state and military of Azerbaijan to continue its bloodlust and aggression. And as things seem to be getting worse, as Armenia seems to be abandoning Artsakh, many of us still maintain that hope that things will get better. As Armenians, especially as diasporan Armenians, we have a choice to make when it comes to our relationship with Armenia and the Armenian cause. Do we run away from the difficult road ahead, forget about Armenia, live comfortably far away from the tragedies that our people are facing once again, or do we face those challenges head-on, moving towards the problems rather than away? And if you choose the latter, what does that exactly look like? We spoke to our friends, our Ungers, our fellow diasporan Armenian compatriots who ran towards the fire rather than away from it. They, among a number of others, repatriated to the homeland, to Artsakh. Not when everything was looking at its best, but when things were at their darkest. These are their stories, their experiences, and the work that they do today. To help expunge the fire brought about by our enemies, and to do their part on the ground with the people who live there, and together give rise to hope and justice for the Armenians and for a free, independent, and united Armenia. You are listening to High Talks, the official podcast of AYF West. I'm haig Minasyan, and I'm Hado Bird,
1: and I'm Suzanne Abrahamian,
0: and we're just a couple of Armenians talking, talking in, the in the world.
1: world.
2: A couple of Armenians talking
1: in the world.
0: Since 2020, how many Armenian diasporans do you think have moved to Artsakh? The answer is not many, but we intend to share with you the stories of the few that have, one of which is Shanchar Shant, both of us you know, grew up doing AYF our whole lives. Um, but I never met you. I think here in California, I met you at your wedding in Armenia where, um, <laughs> I, 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 which I'm pretty sure I crashed. Uh, but I, I mean, we, we all knew each other. Uh, everyone there I knew. And, um, I remember asking you or telling you like, Hey, this is my first wedding in Hayastan, And you're like me too. And it was the funniest <laughs> thing, bro. Um, but what a wedding man, like it wasn't just a wedding in Armenia where it was one of those sodas with the marble floor and the fireworks going off it was like it it was so cool it was like authentic and daraz is in the music and there was even a donkey and it was such a like amazing wedding and it almost makes me want to do that too so um that's where i met you and then the last time i saw you was that kef that we did at your house um before you going to artsakh yeah and then and then now you live in marduni arzakh yes
3: Correct, correct. Yeah. Uh, in the city of Marduni, region of Marduni in Arsakh, correct. Yeah.
0: yeah, so it's the city of Marduni, and how long have you been there for?
3: Um, I could say a year and a half. It was uh, 2021, uh, and- end of March, when we got like an apartment in Marduni, and we've bounced around a couple times. And uh, after my wedding, which was in June, we like fully moved to Artsakh. So mm-hmm. uh, we we had a place in Yerevan still mm-hmm. at that point, and we we're going back and forth. But uh, after the wedding, uh, we we moved everything out, and we don't have a place in. <clears throat> Armenia proper, right now, just in Artsakh.
0: Well, I was actually curious to what that process was like. Like, you know, how did you find the property? You know, what was that? Uh, you know, in case someone else is interested in doing something similar.
3: Um, <laughs> well, over there in Artsakh, there's no like uh, like list am, yeah, like a rental property kind of website thing. But uh, everybody, everybody was really, really helpful. Um, the people in the city. Uh, to be honest with you, that first place that we found in March, um, it was like one of the members of the city council, let's say, over there in mardoni And we stayed there for four months. And as many times as I tried to pay him some form of rent, he didn't take anything. So, I mean, I, we <laughs> stayed there. Um, the guy didn't even charge us anything. And uh, till this day, he won't even like let me buy him a sandwich, you know? So <laughs> he wanted you yeah, to move, it bro. Good.
0: It worked, you know, he yeah. wanted you to come. That's so yeah. funny.
3: No, they were really welcoming and helpful. No. Um, yeah. If somebody wants to move, it's basically kind of a word of mouth type of thing. Um,
0: Get in touch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. People will help each yeah. other there. I mean, I, right. I, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure before the war, but especially after the war, it's just, it's, you know, everyone's taking care of each other out there. I feel like, you know, and that's a It is something really special. I feel like you don't really have anywhere else in the world. Do you feel that way?
3: Uh Yeah, it's, it's, we're really lucky to have that. Um, <clears throat> it's not just like a sense of community. It's an actual community. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Uh, everybody understands that uh, their current life, their future, everything is a, uh, a, uh, Truly interconnected. So, mm-hmm. um, if you're not helping your neighbor, you're also hurting yourself. So, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a community, man, and it's a really good feeling. And it's great knowing that whatever you put into, like whatever work you put into the community, um, it's not something that is just going to go to waste, or that one day, you know, someone's going to decide that, hey, you know what, um, you guys aren't welcome and you guys have to move out of here and you guys have to leave. I mean, other than our uh, enemies, uh, Azerbaijan, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's not going to be like a city council meeting that says, uh, You're "Hey, you know what, or whatever." Yeah, you guys have to go. Yeah,
0: <laughs> this or that, or like, "Hey, we're changing rent prices, and you can't afford it," or whatever issues. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. yeah I could only imagine. Uh, I mean, speaking of like the cultural differences, I mean, uh, you have a beautiful daughter, Maral, which uh, cutest yeah, cutest kid in the world, man. A happy birthday! I know it was her birthday recently. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But Thank you. but um, but I you know I see her playing around and hanging out almost i, I want to say the old-fashioned way right you know she's uh um, you know it's not that artsakh is underdeveloped there's plenty of iphones and this and that but i feel like she's growing up in a like a more genuine human way like does that make sense <laughs> uh
3: i <clears throat> i understand what you're saying i mean the the, the best thing i could con- like compare it to is uh when i was a kid um you know like let's say like after christmas or around new year's you know, you'd see all the kids outside with their bike or their skateboard or basketball, and everybody in the neighborhood would be playing. But, I mean, if you look at how... Obviously, I'm from California, from L.A. If you look at it now, um, when I think back four or five years ago, I go like, that you don't see any kids outside anymore playing. You know, there's there's no kids outside. They're all just inside, either on a PlayStation, or iPhone, or something like that. But in Artsakh, it's... Um, You know, there's actually kids outside playing soccer, you know, and riding their bikes and running around and uh, doing little mischief, climbing trees and falling down. Exactly. Um, So, you know, it's uh, sometimes um, you have to fall to learn how to get up, you know, and um, we kind of, uh, that Western childhood is a little bit um, too protected. Yeah, the helicopter
0: style, yeah. Yeah. No, it's
3: yeah,
0: so, it, it, true that that's great. I've kind of noticed that. And that it's, it's, there's like a romantic thing to that, which I, you know, which I like. And uh, it's these things that I'm like, you know what, things are bad there. And, and we'll get into that. But the these little like silver linings where I'm like, you know, uh, it's a very, I don't know, unique. Uh, I don't know. Growing up for a model, let's say, whereas you know her generation of kids everywhere else, let's say in the U.S. or this and that, you know, are going to be in a completely different digital universe. <laughs> they won't know what it was like before, you know. Um, but to take it back to California, uh, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about you know how'd you end up here right how'd you end up in artsakh uh, before the wedding you know uh let's say because you were in armenia before the war began you were there when it started correct
3: yeah i had I'd, uh, I'd flown out from the states on september 11 2020 Jeez. and got in here i guess on the 13th <clears throat> yeah. and i had come uh, i bought my ticket one way um Nice. It was COVID, obviously. My workplace was closed, so I just planned on staying as long as I could. And uh, I thought, you know, as soon as it snows and it's really cold and I'm not used to the snow, I'll probably just fly back. <laughs> um, at the time, the AYF in Armenia, was uh, they were doing a lot of help with uh, like COVID relief. They were going visiting villages, right. um, passing out food and uh, packages to families of necessities. And I thought I could help with that program, volunteer a little bit over there. And uh, I had raised a little bit of funds with some friends of mine. And um, there was a list of families that I had that they had. I mean, the minimum was like six kids. There were families with nine kids um, and just visited some of those families. The first week I was here um, gave mm-hmm. them a little bit of support. And I did a couple days of sightseeing and then it was already September 27th.
0: Yeah. And, and you met Marine, Marine, right? Your wife's name. Yeah, right. Is correct, that correct. when did you meet her? Was it before the war?
3: I, I met her one day before the war. I met her on September 26th. Um, it, it kind of happened by chance. Uh, I wanted to go to Davos. Uh, a lot of us forget that <clears throat> prior to the September 27th war starting, there were incidents of shootings in and a, you know. In the Davos region, yeah, where the the July Aziz had attacked. yeah, yeah, and I really wanted to see that region. And my plan had been to kind of go to Artsakh and just like backpack around the villages the rest of my stay. So, um, a couple days before the war started, um, <clears throat> General Turo's grandson, uh, that lives in Texas, Philip
0: or uh, something, so, right? Yeah, yeah Philip, Philip, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philip,
3: um someone had connected me in a, like a WhatsApp message said like, Hey, Philip, Michan, Philip, you're both in Armenia. And <laughs> Philip had sent the message and said, Hey, I'm going to Davos uh, on that day on the 26th. You want to tag along? And I said, okay, yeah, perfect. Then uh, the night prior, uh, he sent me a message and said that he can't make it. It's going to be running late. And I put a post on Facebook saying, how do I go to Davos? And coincidentally, the week prior, Um, The AYF here, the local AYF, had been protesting against the Arai Karutunyan of Armenia, who used to be the former... Culture, sport, education, science, ministry. Trying like to that. change
0: Metahide, or he was, uh, he, yeah, no, he. I, <laughs> that at, at,
3: at that time, I mean, one of like the he had many, many things that he was doing. <laughs> yeah, right I wrong. can't even that think of which what it was. <laughs> like he, was, he had so many. They things. were taking Armenian history. <laughs> yes, out yes, the religion the one out of revolutionary movement, yeah. dead eye movement out of like the history books. Yeah, I remember. So. I had met an AYF, I got in there, and he sent me a message back saying, Hey, we're going with a little tour group, and uh, there's like a Cultural Armenian Astanay Dance Festival, Gutan Festival. Oh, it's yeah. uh, being held in Davos. You want to tag along? And uh, I went. Uh, I went with that group, and she was with that group as well. And that's how we met.
0: I think you told the story of how, like, when you saw her, she was wearing a like a Nizhdeh shirt or something like that.
3: Correct, correct. She was wearing a Nizhdeh shirt. I mean,
0: <laughs> for an AYF kid, like, it's. Uh, I don't know. You don't always see that out there with the locals. So I mean, and you I, know. I love your wife. Marina is so cool. Uh, I, I, I like. More I do than you, bro. <laughs> yeah no she's you I, but but we think about like you know like uh uh you know maybe we'll meet someone out there but what are they going to be like but then you uh you found you know the best person out there so and and your family's beautiful yeah, yeah. and it's 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 uh, you know <laughs> and maybe, thank you brother thank yeah. you
3: brother i i wish the same happiness for him
0: Th- that's but what i'm saying <laughs> i want that yeah. too bro Um, so, uh, the war happened and, um, it ended, uh, and at one point, you know, when did you and Marine know, like, or, you know, maybe you only uh, like, you know, Hey, I, I think I want to do Artsakh, you know, what was the thinking for that?
3: Uh, It it was just like a very natural step. I mean, um, during the war, um, it was like October 14th or something, I want to say I, I we went together back to Artsakh. I was doing like these little supply runs and with her I went to Artsakh. Um, we were in Agavno and she was going to uh, teach the kids how to do like Armenian dance and spend some time with the kids, you know, like try to help the kids in the village and refugees that were coming from other places that were staying in Agavno. And we we spent the night. In the morning she was um Separating, you know, like clothes and toys, and marking down like who to give what, and that's when the Aziris, uh bombed that one bridge right there, right next mm-hmm. to alavno And me, I was like, oh shit! Where, oh, excuse me, sorry. You can <laughs> swear, bro. I was like, oh dude, where, you where swear. is she? what is she? And you know, like, I went and I saw her. And she's like, oh, what happened? I'm like, ah, you know, they bombed the bridge. And she's like, okay, she just kept going on <laughs> and stuff. Um, but uh, I was like, you know what maybe it's not the right place for her to be so yeah <laughs> I took her back but uh but still. But after the after the you know I don't like using the term the war ended it hasn't you know, ended right it, it never it, it, did it, it, it never really ended the, the genocide
0: never really uh, ended
3: <laughs> yeah the, the the mass. The mass attack, yes, that ended, but yes. it's the same process going on now. Like their their end game is to depopulate Arsa, right? That's like the, the at least the least of their end game. Hundred uh, percent agree. Yes, we're, we're not trying to say like okay, they totally want to annihilate us, but at the least, they want us to depopulate Arsa. So today, it's easier for them to depopulate Arsa just by making life slightly uncomfortable, cutting off the gas in the winter. Uh, affecting the internet, affecting the electricity, firing a few shots out of a village in China, yeah. tend to, you know, his crops or his animals. Um, and they will reach the same result. They don't need to launch drones and tanks and waste their money on bullets. Let's say if they could just make our life uncomfortable by cutting the gas, bro. Um, it
0: seems like the West Bank or Gaza at this point. The way that you know, like the life that they've made for those people there. If we really mm-hmm. cut Artsakh off from Armenia for good, I mean, it's going to become. I don't want to say like a Gaza or a West Bank. You know, open air prison. It,
3: it is a tough situation, and unfortunately, the 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 political reality today of how the government in Armenia is dealing with it is is totally leading to the entire um, Palestinification yeah. of Armenia and Artsakh, you know, of yeah. both uh, slave states. Know, that, no, you know.
0: I know exactly what you mean. Uh, it's, a, it's a betrayal, at, at least from my perspective. And so then around July, you were saying, or no, around March, you guys were talking about getting a place in Artsakh. Martini. We
3: well we kept the uh, we kept going back and forth like even right after like the November ninth uh, capitulation uh, we went back and there were funds that people had sent me obviously to buy supplies and stuff during the war and our the only next natural step that we had was basically like okay there were so many families that they lost the father of the household they lost a couple sons um, and we said let's start visiting the families and see how we could help them. Yeah. Um, and through those visits, uh, we got to Marlone, uh got to interact with a lot of people over there and uh, particularly Marlone city. They had just in the city itself, they had 49, 49 families that had lost someone mm-hmm. uh, in the city itself, including a couple civilians. Uh, the first victim actually being the young daughter, uh, Victoria, yeah. uh, I want to say nine years old, nine or 10 years old. Uh, she was the first one that uh, lost her life in Marduni. Yeah. And when I approached the the city council members, the mayor whatnot of Marduni, um, they had a very, very good approach to this and they wanted to be fair. You know, they said, well, you know, they they said that, well, what are you going to give? What are you going to do? You know, and they said, we're not asking to just try to get information. We just want to make sure that, whatever you're going to do gets to everybody. If you have a hundred dollars to give, there's 49 families that lost a loved one. Don't just visit one family and take off from here. You know, it's better that you're, you come and you visit and you sit with someone, you know, the money is secondary. Yeah. If, if, if just try to be fair with everybody. And, um, that really, that left a really great impression on us. And, you know, it didn't feel like someone's just, out there trying to make a buck for themselves. Mm. They really care about each other. And just going and visiting everyone, we saw that, you know what, we, we were surrounded by really, really brave and dedicated people, brave mothers, mothers that gave their only son. Um, and their only regret is that they didn't have more kids that could also defend their country. Um, mothers that told us that when the war in the 90s was going on, They were 16, 17 years old and they had seen our heroes and they had tried to help in any way they could, cooking food, cleaning clothes, uh, doing first aid, medical, stuff like that. But they said like, how can I not let my son go and fight? You know, how can I try to hold him back? How can I run away from this land? How could I just let it go? When um, people have come, Armenians have come from far and wide to come and Uh, help us protect our homeland to come and live here and um, them having that generation that witnessed the war in the 90s they know damn well what they're fighting for and what they fought for and they know that uh, if they do not fight and if they give in to this false propaganda that the Azeris and the Turks put forward that hey you know what we want to live in peace you know just give us half of your cows and one of your daughters and one of your villages and we'll live in peace, you know? And unfortunately, there's a segment of the population that, I mean, believes that where they've fallen victim to that. And unfortunately, that same lie is also, uh, that same propaganda is also being pushed forward by our own people. the right now current members of the Armenian government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's a shame that as a people, um, you know what, we, we could say that, hey, you know what, let's take lessons from the genocide and learn. And then people say, hey, you know what, that's 100 years ago. Say, okay, let's take ge- let's take some lessons from the 80s, you know, and what they did in Baku and some And they go like, well, you know what, that was 30 years ago. Okay, let's just take some lessons from 2020, <laughs> you know, what they did to civilians that they encountered in Hatut and stuff. And they say, well, that was during war and two years ago. I say, okay, let's take some lessons from last week. You know when they attacked what people like to say Armenia proper in the Sioni region and by Sisian and Ishkanasar and what they did to you know POWs right there a week ago executing them you know and the horrific things they did to some of the female female uh, soldiers that mm-hmm. we had I mean you don't have to look far back to see um, the level the level of Oh, man. Just, how, their attitudes towards that? us yeah, yeah yeah no it's
0: a present thing you're very right and it's it's yeah. absurd and i mean i'm sure you know like you go back throughout the history during the genocide or even earlier there's always been this portion of armenian society that's willing to risk the enslavement and hopefully the the mercy of the turks will work out and yeah. it really never has you know and uh and it's a shame and i know you know fighting this big Army, this big nations are scary, but I mean, it's you're you're opting into uh, a future of enslavement and eventual slow genocide. Uh, you know, otherwise. Um, and uh, well, it's like
3: it's like, it's it's two options, like It's it's one is you could fight and defend yourself and your rights and what truly is yours and your right to defend, and yes, you may die, right? And it seems like the second option is just give up everything, okay? Hand everything over and they still kill you so I mean, <laughs> or, or you move to russia or whatever and
0: you get and then you know there's yeah. no armenia essentially yeah. um exactly and uh, it's uh, what was uh um there's a great david beck story with uh mm. i'm sure you know um where the khanzoresk sees uh didn't want to fight again and they uh um, after David Beck had died from disease or whatever, Mukhtar wanted to keep the fight going, and then they killed Mukhtar and gave his head to, like, the Shah or the Sultan, and then uh, the Sultan was like... Um uh, how can I trust you as my subjects if you betray your own kind kind of thing and then wipe yeah. them out too, you know? <laughs> it was like you're, you guys are crappy uh, subordinates <laughs> in the first place, you know? Um, it, I'll, I'll send this video to you later. It's a really good uh, documentary on it. But anyways, I'd like
3: to watch that.
0: Yeah. No, it's a great story. Um, but the David Beck story has this same theme uh, that we're kind of seeing today and we saw it during the genocide. Rafi's Gent also has this theme as well. Um, so it's not just some like nationalistic fable, you know, it's like, uh, it's something that we're seeing today in reality as well. Um, so to go back a little bit about the work you're, you've been doing out there, um you know i've been happy to send you uh, money venmo anytime i see you uh, working on a project and I I, I, well i wanted to shout real fast like the fact that it's venmo and i can mm-hmm. just quickly send you like 25 50 bucks and it goes to you immediately and you're someone that i trust and i know you're putting it towards the right thing uh and in my head i'm like he can even keep it for himself i wouldn't care cuz you're awesome but i i know that it's going towards these really cool projects um um, so one, I was gonna say, can you tell us a little bit about those projects that you've worked on? But uh, but, but first, I was curious: like, is that Venmo? Uh, like, has that been a successful method, or is that changing?
3: Um, you know, it, it's it's worked thus far. I'm trying to veer away from that. Um, yeah. by like making a website, I'm waiting for a couple kids in Artsakh to finish this website so that um. It's not; it's a simpler process, so that the funds could just go to the nonprofit that I established mm. uh, in Armenia, um, and then it doesn't look like a little yeah,
0: complicated
3: banking scheme of coming to Shant and then going to a nonprofit. Yeah. So that way, it's uh, a little bit more transparent. Um, but it's worked so far um, in terms of like projects and things we've done. I mean, the work it started by unfortunately visiting. Uh, all the families of the fallen soldiers, giving them some funds, helping them with stuff. Um, and that was, you know, the quick thing. But just giving funds to people, um, it doesn't ensure that, you know, like the country is going to develop in different spheres and stuff like that. Just handing cash to people, giving them welfare, unfortunately, in the long run, will have uh, a negative effect. You know, yeah. people, they, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't get them motivated to go back to work.
0: Creates dependencies. So their
3: soil... And, yeah. Correct, correct. Um, So uh, we moved on from that to different uh, social projects, cultural and sports and everything like that. Um, One of the first big projects that we had was uh, visiting different villages and making sure that um, every single family in that village was covered in the program. And it was to give each one 25 chicks, uh, month-old chicks, Mm -hmm. 40-day-old chicks actually, and uh, some feed, 25 kilos of feed. And the idea behind that was that, you know, they lost a lot of their grazing pastures. A lot of families uh, lost their animals as well. Um, chicks are pretty easy to provide for, uh, even if you don't have the feed, they will just go around and they will eat. And um, with the hopes that if one family could not take care of it, they could actually pool their chicks together, you know, and have somebody take care of it. it but each yeah. family, yeah, each family got it, and you know they could. Make use of the protein when they turn into chickens. Keep some of the eggs, hatch more, and there's a lot. You know, create some stability for them. Um, Where'd we you guys? Asked out more than
0: yeah. How much? How many did ahead. you? I was gonna ask. How, what was like the total number? And then where yeah, did you was, guys get it from?
3: It, just more than ten thousand chicks. That's crazy. And um, <laughs> it was twenty five per family, and some of them were locally sourced in Artsakh when we could. Yeah. Uh, I want to say 50-50. 50% of it was from Arsakh and 50% was from Armenia. The guy would drive it down and yeah. go visit the villages. Um, it, that, that was, it was a nice program and one of the good things about that program is that we got to village, got to visit uh, a lot of villages and meet with a lot of people and see what other future projects we could do. Um, and one of the, the main things I try to tell people is that for us to know what to do in the future, the best way is to interact, you know, like on the ground with people there. Um, You know, it's, you have to come, you have to ask questions, you have to see what's going on. And one of the things that, you know, as, as someone born in the diaspora, raised in diaspora, you know, it's one of the good things that we can bring here is, you know, like thinking analytically, trying to see things from a different angle. And there's some things that, you're going to go visit a village and you're going to see it and you're going to be like oh wait this is a quick fix you know this is a, this is a problem right here but for somebody in that village they just haven't seen an alternative to that you know they've just they're used to that that's yeah. their normal you know so um
0: and vice versa right like and then sometimes we can't see something and then they see it easier right yeah
3: oh absolutely absolutely it's it's you have to learn from each other and interact with each other it's not a one-way street it's not the i'm not putting myself on a pedestal and saying i i'm smarter or no more than the person living there it's you have to come with an open mind and interact and not just try to impose what you think is right you have to interact and see what it is
0: but we do have that perspective from another place from another part of the world and different society that I could see that being beneficial and that would be the hope right if more Armenian diasporans move there uh, that's one of the things that they could offer is those perspectives and ideas um, yeah. so then mm-hmm. I, re- I remember seeing you guys also building a like uh, greenery vegetation kind of uh, greenhouse kind of thing right
3: Yeah, we had we had um, we eventually built uh, two greenhouses. Uh, When we started building the first one, there at the time was not a government um, subsidy incentive type of program for it. So we found it uh, really good to build one big, one really big greenhouse. Um, We found a professional that already had one there, and by building that one, we would. Provide more jobs to more uh, villagers in that area because it wasn't just going to be him operating it. And through that greenhouse, sharing his skills with other villagers, uh, then the government provided, uh, started a kind of subsidy incentive program. So the greenhouses started popping up a bit more in Artsakh. Um, so that's why I didn't keep pushing uh, to build more greenhouses. It's a costly project, but it's essential um, because one of the things that you learn here. Um, when you're living in Artsakh, is that you realize that when you go to go, you go you to buy vegetables at the store, you say, well, where is this from? What village is it from? And the guy says, oh, it's from Armenia. Well, where's the cucumbers from? Oh, it's from Armenia. And you realize that we have a food security issue there yeah. because so much of the vegetables and food and produce, it ends up being trucked in or vanned in to Artsakh. That's so scary, you know. The, the, the concept behind a greenhouse is to make that same plot of land three times, four times more productive and producing multiple times a year instead of just having one cycle. So that's why we did the greenhouses. Um, It's good. It's working. Um, Very nice. We had, uh, I mean, there's other things that we did for the schools and for the kids. I saw you were in
0: um, Baba this last uh, winter, right? <laughs> for all of Artsakh, or at least Marduni.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no, not all of Artsakh, just for all of Marduni. Um, I really, Mardunay. really want to thank everybody in the diaspora, everybody that donated. It made it possible for me to purchase uh, at least 4,000 toys for the 4,000 kids that I had on this list. Um, and that was, I mean, from newborn. We had accounted for from newborn to 10 years old. But, you know, you go, you visit a village and there's like 20 kids and three of them are 13, 14 and 16. Yeah. So you don't go like, hey, you know what? Everybody gets a present. You don't. So um, we were able to cover everybody. I could say that we went to every single village in Marduni, which is uh, it's 29 villages in the city. And it took me. <laughs> it took me like uh, six weeks, basically, to get that all done. But all right, good it, it was great seeing <laughs> all the kids, the smiles on their faces, and um the the good thing about uh the presents as well was that at least three quarters of the presents were stuff that were made in Armenia, produced in Armenia. Nice. Um, the only things that weren't were probably soccer balls and jump ropes. Um, but everything else was. Pretty much made in Armenia, so it was really it was good and fun project, and it was fun for the kids as well. It was, it was great.
0: I guess you debunked the myth that you know God Baba does it all in one night, so you proved that. No. Anyway, I, I I'd no. even, dude, I'd even say like since you went to every village, like you might as well like also conducted like a census or a survey, you know, like uh, <laughs> uh, get the data too while you're out there because that's that's a huge uh, feat to like go to that many towns and meet that many people within a few, you know, six weeks is still pretty, it's not that long, you know, so it's that's crazy man um yeah. and then and then i did see the really uh cool and, and cute like the the puppet shows and stuff at the schools right that was what you're talking about in terms of working with the schools yeah yeah
3: it's well i'll give you a little backstory on that yeah. um that that puppet show is part of the uh, shushi puppet theater shushi mm-hmm. theater group um they were in the city of shushi um it was well-known in Artsakh, you know, to go and see them. And unfortunately, uh, after the war or because of the war, because we do not have sushi right now, um, most of the actors are spread out half between different places in Artsakh yeah. and some of them are in Gyumri in Armenia,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
3: where there's a bit of uh, theater over there. Um, so when I reached out to Hamaskain over here, to the ARS, uh, to... Excuse me, Hamas not ARS today. You Hamas stand stand over here. here. Um, they they connected me with them, and it was great. We we got the group together. We brought them down for one week to Artsakh and uh, to to Marduni region, and we put on two shows a day each time in a different village, and we tried to provide transportation to the neighboring villages and we spread the shows out around the entire region so that every single village could take their kids that were in that age range to the shows um it was really good to both for us i mean it was great for us the kids loved it and the actors were really motivated by that because um you know they hadn't really been doing much up to that and they hadn't Come back to Artsakh as a group and put on shows. So mm-hmm. it, it was really great to see them back in Artsakh and putting on shows, and the kids enjoying it. And it's something that we take for granted because in some of these far-flung villages, um, I'll tell you a story. There, there was a there was a grandmother, like like an old lady, I went you know, seventy years old, that she watched the whole show, the whole puppet show, mm-hmm. and then at the end when they come out from behind the curtain and they're holding you know the puppets. She was like, oh, my God, I didn't know there were people behind that." <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's basically, I mean, it's… Uh, that's so, that's how well they did. That pe- people aren't exposed to this stuff everywhere. So it was great to get a chance to take some culture and, you know, some entertainment out to places that people do not have access to it. Uh, it, it, was, it was a good experience. And um, a month later, um, some people reached out from, coincidentally, the Ishkan Asar area, Sisyon Ishkan Asar. And uh, one of my friends, that he's uh, an AYF member from the East Coast, from Chicago. Oh, Garin. Uh, Garin. Mm-hmm. Garin. Garin uh, lives in Merri. So mm-hmm. he had also reached out and said, hey, you know what? Why don't you bring that show uh, down from Sisian to Merri, uh, go to David Peg, some of these other frontline places that there was Azeri attacks and aggression yeah. on. So we did a, a week of shows like that as well. We put on six shows in Armenia. And it was, awesome. it was really fun and good experience. And it's kind of motivating to see the strength and determination of people living in, you know, these frontline villages, you know, standing their ground, you know, staying on their ancestral lands, not leaving, you know, and being so strong. Because uh, when you just hear it on the news, you say, oh, my God, man, that's terrible. You know, The odds is right there. How can these guys live? And you go and you see it and you see, man, they are strong people. You know, it's... Uh, the strongest, you not bro, break the world.
0: Nope. Yeah, uh, d- d- uh, these Azeris, they, they they couldn't win. They had to use robots and shit. So uh, mm. th- there's no honor in what they do, and there's no bra- uh, mm. courage in what they do. Um, mm. They're cheating, uh, whatever you want to call it. But there's no, I guess, uh, rules in this uh, the hell. So um, mm. you know, we're gonna have to catch up and play dirty. I don't know what to tell you. So, um, but uh, I mean, I. I I am curious, you know, like I, I, I hate to think about worst case scenarios and what could go wrong and this and that, but, um, you know, safety and security and like your family, you know, you have a new family and stuff, you know, how do you feel about those prospects? Do you feel like, hey, if things went down and you had to get out of there, could you get out of there? If the Azarias were to, you know, come across you and like, this is an American citizen, you know? Do you, you know? We uh, how do you feel about those things? You know, I'm. <laughs> I don't want
3: to say it keeps you well, up at night, but
0: <laughs> goddamn.
3: Well, on the on the on the first point, um, I don't see myself or us like trying to get out of there. You know, it's uh, we're there, and the good times will be there, and the bad times. You know, it's oh, uh, yeah. that's that's one of the things. Um, second, You know, some people ask me, okay, why why over there? Why so close? And You know, during this war, there's uh, a lot of people that I met after I met their families, and basically I got a chance to feel like I actually know their son. I actually know their father. I got to know their life. And um, there's this enemy that we have that unjustly cut that life short. Then there's people that I actually knew that I had met that, you know, they were alive. And then, you know, I had a personal relationship with them, and they also lost their lives during this war um in my heart you know there's there's a special place that wants revenge for these lives that were taken and if i want revenge uh i want it from somebody from something mm-hmm. right and that is azerbaijan that is my enemy mm-hmm. so i think it's more practical for me to be there <laughs> on that land in that place for in that land that these people gave their lives to defend and to do my best to develop it to do my best to um make it a happy place make it make it a make it a home you know to rebuild that country and to live there because i don't want uh, their sacrifice to be in vain i don't yes. want them to have sacrificed to save this land for me to not live there what what is the point you know these guys give their lives so that we live there and that's why they protected the land so i want to live there and just by living there i'm i'm taking out a little bit of revenge that's his own revenge for sure you know sure. It's, yeah you know.
0: and yeah. i i feel like uh, Shant, uh, because there's so many fathers and sons that aren't there i can also see like you being there not that you're like you know uh, the father and the son of these people, but like you're another figure there, another role model or another helping hand for a lot of these families, you know, that you're kind of a, you know, you're going to pay back for those people's sacrifices by, you know, taking up that mantle as well. You know, you have another added, um, uh, thing position there in the community, you know, uh, with a lot of utility for these families. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm just happy to be here and help however I can. And, Amen. uh, it's
0: yeah it's
3: just great being surrounded by people that you know um, they will do everything to help and protect you as well yeah um, and I'm can, willing man. to do the same for them yeah
0: so shant uh uh, looking forward to seeing you when i come back to armenia soon uh hopefully i can see you in artsakh as well there aren't many like you shant uh it's really encouraging to see that there's diasporans like you out there right now um and it's great you know just from one person so much you know can be done let's say you know uh, if if we just had a you know a hundred shots i think we'd get a <laughs> we'd get sushi back uh, or something.
3: I'm, I'm no one special i'm just I another know, know. another kid that went through the ayf and crazy guys ended up finding myself back in the homeland finally um. but
0: <laughs> hey uh, yeah. uh tell um tell marina and uh tell Maral, little Maralik, I say hello and um, stay safe and keep up the good work, Gershant.
3: Of course, of course, likewise, likewise, likewise.
0: For the handful of repatriates we spoke with in this episode, there was a common theme we noticed. Their decision to relocate their lives across the world in these dark days of our young republic's history was not pre-planned and prepared for over the years but a decision made in the moment an instinct of duty and love blue kalamian now finds himself a resident of armenia having moved there indefinitely whose life trajectory changed after an impromptu trip to armenia and artsakh following the war in 2020 as a volunteer and to document what he saw
4: All right. Welcome, guys, to Hytook Talks is another beautiful episode for you guys. And we have our good friend, Blue Kalamian. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been a big fan of your work. Um, just for the listeners to know, when we created Hytook Talks, we had our own studio at the time. Right. And in that studio, we had one side of the wall huge chalkboard and blue did an amazing job it's on our instagram still would we'll probably post that at some point again um that was beautiful man i'm telling you i looked at it a lot it's like an inspirational thing too but you've always been sort of like that art because that by the way if anybody hasn't seen it like you have to have some like artistic you know hand to do something like that have you always had that sort of um ability
5: um no, actually I think like my my drawing skills kind of suck to be honest, but I think at the time, like it was like right it was during COVID, I believe. Um I was practicing a lot of like calligraphy and like graffiti style stuff. And so I think I was better at it then even than I am now. Um and of course we had I had talked with with Haig and he was like, Yeah, I like this stuff, like we want to do something for high tube talks. So honestly, I was so nervous to do that because I've never done art. I'd, I've never done, like, drawing art for anybody else other than, like, my own doodles and stuff. And so I was like, man, I hope I don't walk into this room with a bunch of, like, you know, Armenians I don't know, but I want to know and, like, just completely ruin their wall. Luckily, it's chalk. You can just erase it without Yeah, I like it. But I, I'm glad you guys liked it.
4: No, I, th- I thought it was great, man. I thought, you know, it could have gone a lot of different ways. I thought that was a really good... um to have up there and so you know I do know now you're you're a filmmaker and you do some photography as well tell me about like just we'll get to the Armenian side of everything but I want to know for you in your in your case was photography and and filming and editing is that something that you were always passionate about
5: yeah um when I was like in I don't know, eighth grade or something, or maybe going into high school. I just remember like having a conversation with my dad. We were both very into movies and stuff. And I just like, I think I just told him, like, I just want to make movies. Like, I think that'd be cool to make movies. And my dad's done some acting and stuff like on the side, completely different than like his normal career. And he was, you know, super stoked about that. He was like, awesome. Yeah, yeah, you should make movies. So I think I kind of all throughout high school had it in my head, like, yeah. When I graduate high school, I'm going to make movies. And uh if I had one regret in my career, I guess it's a very short career, but uh, so far, but if I had one regret, it's that I didn't start really making films in high school. I made one or two videos. Um, But my senior year of high school, I got into a uh, AP photography class. I kind of finagled my way in because I think there were like two prerequisite, uh, prerequisite classes that I needed to take. But anyway, I I got in. And that's where it really took off because um, I was I was taking this AP photography class. As part of that, you're part of like the high school's photography club. And I took a very active role. I really wanted to. um, uh, I don't want to say I would like I just wanted to impress the teacher, but I really wanted to learn a lot. And so I was able to have a lot of one on one time with him where we were working on projects that like other students I was volunteering for projects, basically that other students weren't. And, uh, and I, even though I was just doing photography, I still knew that the next year when I went to college, I was going to go to film school. And so I, I did end up going to film school and, um, yeah, it, like, I think I kind of always knew at least from, from that point going into high school that I wanted to be a film director I didn't realize, I didn't really think about what kind of film director I wanted to be. Um, you just so knew you actually, wanted to be in that industry, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew I wanted to, when I was a kid, I was thinking of it like, I want to be like, like uh, Steven Spielberg, you know? Like, I want to <laughs> be Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan's one of my favorite directors. Also David Fincher. I was like, I want to be there. I want to conceptualize and have like the actors and, um you know, come up with a really, a really, crazy or cool story that's really going to hit you in the heart, you know, like it's all about emotion. Everything's about emotion. Even photography is about emotion. People don't like always see it that way, but, um, I just, I want to make you feel something, you know? And so, uh, but, but through that time in uh university, I slowly started working my way into the world of documentary kind of unintentionally. It started, I think, just by taking a photojournalism class to meet some like prerequisite, um, and uh, I didn't think that I'd want to pursue documentary because it, I I saw it as like I incorrectly viewed it as being a little bit less creative um, and less like emotionally like hard hitting, I guess. Mm. Um, but after playing around with a couple documentaries in uh, in in my university days, I realized that I liked it. Um, Not only did I like it, but it was a little bit more, it's a little easier, I think, to get up and say, I have this idea, let's go shoot it with a documentary. Because with a a fiction film, you have so much planning that's necessary. Um, I'm a very running gun style filmmaker. Like, just tell me where the shoot is and I'll go. You know, I I don't need... uh, I've only asked for for uh, legal permits once in my life Um, and every other time it's worked out fine. No one's ever asked me for a permit like I'm not (laughs) I I don't really trip about all that. I'm there to get the film, you know, I'll let the producer handle the legal stuff. Um, But documentary, it's easy because I can, for example, even with this with this film, Dust Never Settled. I could never have made a fiction film happen with like 12 hours notice, especially in a country like across the world. This time it was like, all right, cameras in the bag, got my clothes, got my microphone. Let's go.
4: And a country that's in the condition that it's in. That's important to state like what it's winter time, especially like, you know, there's a war going on, like to do that in such a, you know, like a active uh, military territory per se, you know, it's, It's very, very, you know, only a documentary can you really be able to capture all that the way you did. Now, I'm curious to know, um, for the documentary, at what point did you, like, you're saying, yeah, you basically did in 12 hours or 12 days, like, notice. Like, when did you decide you were going to go to that specific place and start recording?
5: Um, So, it was actually... um... November 13th, day before my birthday, and uh I was celebrating with my family because I had plans to hang out with my friends the next day. And one of the friends I was supposed to hang out with, he called me and he had told me that his cousin, he had told me previously that his cousin was uh, a doctor and he was here doing surgeries. And um, my friend, his name's Auden. at the time he was an EMT. And so... He called me and he was basically telling me like I can't hang out tomorrow. Um, I'm gonna go to Houston and I'm gonna I'm gonna help my cousin. He needs extra hands in the operating rooms. And you know, throughout the war, I had done a lot of um, activism work, a lot of you know it was COVID. Then I had no job. I had literally just my hobbies. And you know, I'm sure I don't have to speak to how agonizing it is to sit at home and do nothing. You can raise money but personally like that didn't feel any better you know i felt sick every day and i i'm not i'm not a soldier i'm not a politician um i don't have the skill set to be those things what i do have is the skill set to tell stories and the entire time i was sitting at home i was just thinking man like i just want to go there and film like i want i want to go there and show people what it looks like. I want my American friends to wake up and be like, like shit blue is out there. Like this kid, I know from California, this kid I used to skate with or used to go to the beach with or whatever is out there. Uh, you know, now I'm going to pay attention because one of my homies is out there, you know? And so in my mind during the entire span of the war, I was like, Wishing that I could be there, but knowing that I couldn't, knowing in air quotes because obviously you know this opportunity arose now, I've always wanted to go to Hastan. I'd never been um I grew up with very, very close Armenian friends, but I would say in a less conventional Armenian household. Um, so, so I actually
4: wanted to ask you about that, not to uh, yeah we'll'll we'll, I want to still that's talk okay. about that that time frame, but that's something i've I've found extremely interesting before you went to Armenia. At that time, you had, so what I'm understanding, you had not ever been to Armenia before.
5: No, I had never been. i had never been. And uh I had gone to Armenian school until about second grade. At that time, I was able to read and write and speak a little, you know, like a second grader. Mm-hmm. But nobody in my family speaks Armenian. My grandmother does. Um, but I didn't live with her. She lived a, a little bit away. So even though we would talk, it was just always easier to speak in English. And um even her Armenian is... She was never formally trained. She can't read or write in Armenian. She was just taught by her her parents, you know, who came over from um, modern day Turkey. And so, uh, yeah, I, I. And my oh, the other thing is that my mom is not Armenian. She's uh, Peruvian and English. So I'm a mix, which is great because I'm very tied with like my Peruvian culture as well. But um, you know, this whole melting pot that is America, and plus, especially Southern California. My dad grew up in L.A., um, you know, not speaking Armenian. He understands because his grandmother would speak to him in Armenian. So he understands, like, Western Armenian, like, decently. But he can't speak. And it's an interesting thing. Um, And so because of that, I never learned, you know. I I never properly learned. And after I left to go to public school, um, I lost that knowledge. So it was always important for me to regain that knowledge um it was always important for me to learn how to speak armenian it was always important for me to remain up to date with what's going on in hayastan and thing is you know as a young kid like i'm not going to scour news sources to figure out uh, english language news sources to figure out what's going on in hayastan at age like 16 you know like you have other priorities when you're a teenager so as an adult it was difficult going in like i don't know where to look for news um and so i went to my friends my friends were my source of everything i i found out what's going on through them i asked them what does this word mean in armenian how do i say this very very slowly i was collecting like little vocabulary words you know and um and you know i got to give a lot of credit to them i got a lot of love for them um without them i would not have the Armenian identity that I have now without them I wouldn't be here to be honest um, so do you think that I Armenian think that was- community that you had those
4: those like brothers that you had that were able to almost like you guys were able to not only connect with Armenianist but almost like share experiences that kind of like also brought more and it, it sounds kind of weird saying like Armenianist but like there's a true feeling behind it of saying like yeah. when I'm around my Armenian brothers and sisters. I feel more Armenian. Like there's just a reality of our ghost sometimes. So I'm sure you felt that same way.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I have a lot of like, I don't want to just say American friends, but like I have a lot of friends who are not Armenian as well. And they all know I'm Armenian, you know, like uh, like, if they (laughs) asked you, what is blue? They might not even know I'm Peruvian. They would just say like, yeah, he's Armenian. Um, But, but absolutely, you're right. Like when I'm with my Armenian friends, there's definitely like a feeling of like brotherhood. And I think part of it also is that they are the friends I've had for the longest in my life. Like some of them I've been friends with for actually all of them. Um, for the most part, the closest ones I've been friends with for 20 years and I'm only 24 years old. Like (laughs) how many 24 year olds have friends for two decades? Very, it's very rare, you know? Um, so it's, it's pretty cool that. I have to say this as well. It's pretty cool that they had the patience as well to like walk me through those times in my life where I needed that education, where I needed that connection to Armenianness, because I didn't have any other like, you know, um, outlets for it basically. So all of that ties in because during the war, of course, we were very active. We were very like, you know, um, Trying to do everything that we could. And we had a lot of friends, uh, a lot of friends who hit me up, let's say because of my skills in calligraphy to help them make signs and things. And we would go out at night and we would hang them from the freeway uh, bridges. And like, we were doing like all kinds of things that, like, now I think, like, you know, maybe it didn't do too much, honestly. But at the time, it, we were going to do everything that we could. Cause like, what else were we going to do? We could donate money. We can put signs up and we can attend like rallies and protests and whatnot. But at the end of the day, if someone had hit me up and said, I have this one more thing we can do, of course, yes, let's go do it. You know, even if it doesn't impact anything, like we needed to try. And that was, you know, the big thing. So going back to the story, uh, Aden calls me and he says, he's going to highest on the next day. And he's like, I think he says something like, Sorry, I can't like see you on your birthday. I was like, dude, no worries. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Like, whatever. You got more important things to do. So then I kind of think I think I just passively said, like, ah oh, man, like I wish I could go with you, you know, because I had been thinking about I wanna like shoot this thing. I wanna tell these people's stories and bring them to like new light to an American audience specifically. And also to the Armenian audience who's also stuck at home, wishing that they understood what is going on. Because, you know, again, the the access to news is so few and far between. The access to good news, I should say, is so few and far between. So I, I was like, I, I wanna show them so that they don't have to wonder anymore what it's like. I wanna I wanna go so I don't have to wonder. So I can see it for myself, you know. Um and so I said, like, oh man, I wish I could go with you. And he just goes, why don't you? And I was like, I didn't have I'll a do good, I didn't have a good answer. The day after my birthday, I was supposed to leave for a two-week road trip, so I had the whole two weeks like with nothing planned except, you know, I'm going to go on this road trip up the West Coast. So I said, Dan, like. You bring up a good point. Like I don't really have a reason <laughs> not to. And uh the reason I had mentioned earlier that I wasn't as like uh connected to my Armenian heritage, I think, as maybe some of my friends, is because I had always been nervous to come to Hassan because I can't speak the language. I don't know any I don't have any mm-hmm. family here. Um I don't know enough about like even just the layout of Yerevan. I was just worried like I'm gonna go to this place by myself. Um and it's just gonna be, you know, a crappy experience because I can't communicate properly. That was the biggest thing. I was just worried I can't speak Armenian. How am I gonna like talk to people? So I was always waiting on like the perfect opportunity to go with friends. And unfortunately, you know, the only good opportunity that arose was from this situation. So uh I hung up the phone, I was with my dad and my grandma, and uh so I told them initially. Like, you know, my grandma was all like, What was that all about? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I think I might go to Hyattston tomorrow. And they were both like, What? Like, oh, tomorrow, like the next day. Tomorrow. Like, literally, my <laughs> friend was like, I, There's a ticket that leaves LAX at noon. Like, we oh, wow. go. And this was like around noon or something. Um, no, sorry. This was the evening of the night before. <laughs> So he was like, he was like, if you want to do it, like we got to buy the ticket soon. So just let me know. He's like, no pressure. Just let me know. So then I was like at, I wasn't at my house. I was at my relative's house and I was just thinking it over and I was like, shit, I need to get home. Like I need to pack right now. Um, And so I, yeah, I left the family gathering. I went to my house. Um. I started packing. I bought my ticket. I told my mom. And then I went to sleep. The next day, Otter and I ordered a plane. 20-hour flight. Yeah, we got on a flight. It was a crazy first 24 hours, man. Because, you know, that flight's long. So, like, you wake up, like, uh, you take off and you land two, day, two calendar days later, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's a trip. So like we took off November 14th, landed November 16th. We landed at like 5 a.m. And at like 10 a.m. we were in the hospitals. It's like somehow, just like that, we were like given access to the hospitals. Um, and you know, like in America, you can't just walk into a hospital with a camera and start filming patients, like super, super no no. Um, so we went in and like I was with Auden, who was in scrubs, like he looked like proper we had another friend we were staying with who was also in scrubs and the nurses are like speaking to them in armenian like oh where are you from like <clears throat> what are you doing and Auden was like oh this surgeon's my cousin um we're here to help him whatever and they're like oh great great and they look at me and mind you i don't speak armenian the woman asked me like uh, what are you doing here cuz i'm not in scrubs i'm wearing like normal clothes and uh I said, like, uh, I think maybe I knew Chiaskatsa at the time. So I said something like that. Mm-hmm. And she said in perfect American English, oh, sorry, what are you doing here? And I didn't realize she was American. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm here to interview soldiers. Like, that was it. Like, you know, I wanted to get their experience. And I thought she was going to be like, are you, like, do you have permission? Like, who said you could do that? and she was like oh thank god we've been saying for for weeks that we need someone out here to tell these guys stories they have so many interesting stories and they need to be documented and i was like oh thank god so after that like i basically had like a, an open pass to like roam the hospital at will interview whoever i wanted to as long as they agreed to it um, so
4: let me ask you this about that hospital experience a little bit which is um a good part of the uh, documentary that you made which is Showed some very powerful scenes, um, with the patients. What was, what was their reaction like to being filmed and having somebody kind of ask them questions and film them? Because in most cases, this is something that they've never, no one's ever been interested in them and what's going on with them. So what was in your experience? What did their reaction seem like?
5: Um, it was sort of a mixed bag because. <clears throat> For most of them, they were they were less interested in why I was filming and more interested like why I felt the need to be there, you know, like not that they don't understand. I think they understood mm. like why I was there, but they were like, you know, the constant question was like says <laughs> like like on him stuff. And I just thought like, you know, in my head I was like, isn't it obvious, man? Like do you not understand what you just went through and like the powerful implications of your experience being shared on camera. But I think for them, the, here's the thing I got to say about these guys. They were like, most of them were incredibly sweet, incredibly kind people. Just like they were funny. They were, you know, a lot of them were, a lot of them were older men and a lot of them were like literally kids, you know, like, And that's a crazy, like, juxtaposition. But some of these kids are, like, the class clown, you know? Like, they're always messing around. They're teasing each other, like, pulling little jokes on each other. And I got to say that was something really beautiful to see, like, that they're able to find a reason to smile and laugh despite what they're going through, despite the fact that they're immobilized or, like, you know, bedridden for weeks. So I think their reaction was mostly positive because a lot of them did give me interviews and they were like happy to talk to me. I think because they were interested as like, Oh, like an American Armenian came here to like film. And I wasn't the only one there were American Armenian nurses and doctors as well. But, um, they were like, I think somewhat fascinated by my work because it's not like the normal work you'd see in a hospital. There were some people who, uh, didn't want to be interviewed. They were okay with being filmed. They just didn't want to give interviews. Totally understandable. There were some people who didn't want to be on film at all. And they would repeatedly bother me like about like, I'm not in this shot, right? I'm not in the screen. And I'd be like, no, like, if you tell me you don't want to be filmed, that's it. Like, I'm not going to film you. But um, I think, you know, you'd probably find that reaction in any group of people. There are going to be some people who just don't want to be filmed.
4: Yeah, because something that came... Um, across to me when I was watching this film, which was, it was just to also say, not just that it was, it was very powerful, kind of like what you're talking about being able to induce um, emotion when somebody's watching your work. I think you fully achieved that in this documentary because I'm telling you, I, I watched it. I start tried watching it at work. I literally could not watch it at work. I had to like go home and watch it at a later time, like. Because it was just so powerful and so recent, you know, and seeing, just like you said, seeing those kids in the hospital room, not to you know, spoil too many details, but their attitude in the situation and condition they were in, the, you still saw the soul there. You still saw the joy that they were trying to come out of it. And to, to capture that is, it's good to know that there, you know, people are still finding ways to, to live and be happy and try to live their lives. Like despite going through what they went through and I'm sure you got that feeling too, when you saw them be joyful, because in our eyes, you know, it's a very scary thing what they're going through. So, you know, yeah, go ahead.
5: Uh, I was just going to say, I think something that's important to note here is that um, there's no correct way to deal with trauma. You know, you've heard a lot of people say this. there's no right or wrong way. There are dangerous ways, but I think laughter is the least dangerous way. I think that, you know, there there was this thing when we were there as well, um, you know, because I was posting pictures a lot when I was there on Instagram and stuff. There was this fear that I had and some of the other volunteers had of like posting photos of us smiling with soldiers, like eating snacks and stuff. Man, these guys were so funny, too, because all of these snacks they would get food brought in from restaurants. They would get a whole bunch of snacks, everything paid for by like diasporan charity funds and stuff that were like funding, you know, getting the soldiers like, like snacks or cigarettes, even, or like whatever. Um, honestly, they had so much stuff that like, they would just not even eat a lot of it. Or they would say like, you can take these items away. Cause we don't like these, like give them to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so, Literally day after day, these guys, multiple guys, like each room is like a tiny little community, you know, kind of like college dorms where these guys would be like, Adi, Adi, Akbaris, like uh, come eat with us, whatever, come drink surge, like everything. And we were like, dude, we can't eat your food. Like we can't eat these snacks. This is like some diaspora paid for this for you to have, but there's so much of it. And they're like, no, please, please, we won't eat it unless you eat it, you know, like funny, like Armenian things. Yeah. So we were conflicted, like, um, I don't want to make it seem like we're all just out here having a good time, you know, but I was bonding with these guys. And, you know, even though I had limited Armenian, they were joking with me and I was joking with them and we were making it work. And that in itself is a beautiful experience, something that's not on film, something I don't think could be captured on film, but a beautiful experience for me, um, but the way that i you know think about it is that laughter is the best medicine and these guys have had enough time being sad they're going to have a difficult time moving forward with physical therapy with these uh you know wounds that may never fully heal should they never laugh again should they never smile again when is it an appropriate time to start feeling happiness you know once again so i think that um you know Again, it's something that we were worried might, might be misunderstood. But um So what were you trying to capture go. with the
4: documentary? Like when you were out there, what were you what was the thought process on that? What were you
5: trying to get? Um So, you know, when I came, I had no plan of who I was going to interview or what the structure of the film would be like. Obviously, if I did, it would probably be a much more streamlined process, but um like I said, I came like I was writing notes on the plane trying to figure out, like, what is the story? Like, what is mm-hmm. what is the documentary actually? Um, but I didn't have a lot of time to fully flesh out that idea. What I knew I wanted was to basically collect the stories of people who are affected by the war, um, people who went through it directly, collect the stories and present them to a larger audience because these people they might be interviewed for like a local news thing they might might be interviewed by a bigger company like vice or something like that or a european journalism uh group but part of it is like i i just want to sit with them and be like how open been what happened just tell me your story you can talk about your childhood for all i care you know like But how did you end up here? What have you gone through? How has it changed your life? Um, and what's the plan moving forward? And of course, I edited down everybody's interviews to, you know, be able to fit more into the film. But if I could, I would just release the entire interviews of of everybody I did because there are so many pieces, unfortunately, that have to be cut out when you're making a film. But I just wanted to shine a light where lights don't get, you know, where these people are not going to be given a microphone, uh, normally I wanted to give them a platform to share what happened to them. And through that, maybe the rest of us can have a better understanding of what it means to go to war. That It's not this glorified, you know, Hollywood production. It's uh, a truly harrowing experience.
4: Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, documentaries or even, um, in cases like reality television, some of these things are the most um, emotion inducing, most impactful because they're real. This is real mm-hmm. stuff that we're looking at here and stuff that's happening right now, not 50 years ago either. This is happening right now. So do you feel like what you're trying to while you the idea you had while you're filming? Do you think with the final product, you were able to um, relay the message that you wanted to?
5: Yeah, I do. Um, You know, it took a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of like, I have this issue where when I'm editing my own footage, I'm so emotionally attached to the footage. It's really hard for me to cut things out. Um, And I was lucky enough to have another editor work on work on the beginning of the film, which kind of helped me get over the hump of like, I was able to separate myself from it a little bit, which I think was necessary as a director. It's very difficult to not be emotionally attached to your project. But especially when it's about something like this, like, how could I not be as an Armenian? You know, like every single shot was important to me. Um, So I'm very happy with the final product that I was able to show all the best parts of what I was able to capture there. Uh, And do it in a concise way where you can understand these people's stories. Um, And what I also really enjoy about the film, I have to say, is the variety of perspectives that I was able to, you know, collect while I was here. Because um, it's not just one focus for the whole doc. We have, like, the wounded soldiers that were in Artsakh but are now, you know, in a hospital in Yerevan. Um, people who experienced drones directly, which is crazy because this is the first time in conventional war that we've seen drone warfare like so heavily prevalent and in a way that it tips the scales of the conflict. Um, I was able to capture, you know, as you saw, like uh, the nurse's perspective, doctor's perspective, even an American Marine, not even Armenian. Um, So that was that was really cool. And then, of course, a soldier from Artsakh and the family from Artsakh and their experience um you know during the war yeah yeah that the family
4: knocks off too was a was a very um touching touching moment emotional moment i saw especially when i was watching it that was pretty crazy to see so when um it especially in the documentary when i saw that video of like how close the ozzies were and then they're so exactly. close like that's like pissed me off to be honest like that it was yeah, that yeah. close and where they what they were inside
5: and you know, the meaning of it. Like honestly, that's why I put it in there. Like I debated whether or not I should show it. Because I didn't have any other context. Like I literally pulled to the side of the road and, and shot some footage of Shushi and like I put it in there to piss people off, you know? Yeah. So you no. can feel like upset and you can understand what it looks like, the occupation, you know, the big Osiris flag hanging from Shushi Castle is like and what's funny is the day we went in. It was super foggy. So, like, you couldn't see anything. Like, I'm talking the most fog I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. So, you couldn't. I didn't see Shushi when I entered Artsakh. But when I was leaving, it was clear. So, when we pulled around the corner, like, up the mountain where you could finally see it, I was like, one, wow, look at this beautiful castle. Like, this is kind of sick, you know? Like, And then, like, we pulled farther and I see the Osiri flag and I was like, way to make a statement, you know? And their music was, like, echoing off the mountains. It was It was very loud. And what's not on film, that one shot right after I cut, I heard like some gunshots, and I think they were just training, like on the other side of the wall, where like I couldn't see. But I I heard gunshots, and I just thought these guys can see me across the ridge, like pointing a camera at them on the Armenian side. And I was like, this is not good. Like,
4: yeah, if they want to.
5: Like- they could. They could shoot at me. So immediately I was like, all right, I'm out. And I got in the car and we left.
4: Before we get to some details about when people can see the film, I do want to know. So right now you're in Armenia currently, right? In Yerevan. So are you moved? Are you there full time? Is this a full time gig for Mr. Blue?
5: Yeah, yeah, it is. I've been here. uh, Like I said, I came in April 2001 with the expectation of staying for maybe four months. Um, Four months quickly turned to like eight months, I think. And uh, at that point, I had already decided like I I went home after after for like a month, but I had already decided that I was going to stay. So now I'm now I'm fully here um, going on. Going on one year of knowing that I'm staying here, uh, but it's been about a year and a half that I've been living here full time. I think I've been back in the States collectively for like two or three months during that time. And part of the reason, like, I think Artsak, going to Artsakh had that, like, it was like another poignant experience that like convinced me to move here, like, or convinced me to stay here more permanently, I think.
4: Mm, but yeah, it's amazing that, you know, having the background that you did growing up and especially being, um, you know, Peruvian as well. To make that full jump to living in Armenia, that you know repatriation, it's pretty dope. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. And to make that commitment is also like a big commitment to make. You know, even like not to talk too much about myself. Like my family's like very, very Armenian. Most of my family's in Yerevan, and they always ask me like, would you live there or here? And before, when I was a kid, like I used to be like, nice place to visit, but I don't see myself living there. But as the years go on, even though my parents came here in the 90s, as the years go on, living in Armenia just sounds a lot more nicer to me. So, how how important do you think it is for Armenian diaspora Armenians, especially, especially potentially even the ones in Los Angeles, but how important do you think it is to repatriate back to Hayastan? Um,
5: that's a really good question, an important question. So even when I came to do Birthright, um, you know, they tell you in the orientation that their goal is to basically convince you to repatriate. Um, They're not, they don't hide that fact. It's not a secret. And, you know, for me, I've always been uh, fascinated with travel. I've always wanted to live in other countries. Um, I have family in Peru. I considered living with them for a while. I've always wanted to travel the world and spend significant time in in a lot of places. Um, So when I came, I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll see about repatriating. Like, I didn't feel like I needed to move to Haastan for the rest of my life in order to be a good Armenian. And I still don't think that you have to, actually. Um, I think it's important. What I think is more important than just simple repatriation is if you have a skill set that um, that could be beneficial to our country, for example, if you are an expert in military strategy, if you're an expert in renewable energy or just alternative energy sources, if you have good business sense and you can make a good business here, um, you know, things like this. I think then it's more of like you should come and you should help your country. But me personally, I'm not really one to tell anyone else how they should live their life. For me, repatriation has been important because it's it's provided me a way of life that is much more conducive to my personality, I think, than life in America. And there's no shade to people who function well on that system at all. It's just for me, um, I think I just do better in this kind of environment. And, you know, I'll be here until I feel like it's no longer the, the correct decision. Doesn't mean I won't come back. I'm I might move to america i might move somewhere else i don't know but you know especially now the experiences i've had in high will um have made it clear to me that i will always have a place here um and even if i here's the thing i'm trying to save up right now to buy a house here um it's not as easy as they tell you it is yeah it's cheap compared to america but it's not easy there's a lot of like government stuff you got to deal with um but even if i leave I want this to be my goal that even if I leave, I'll always have a home here. You know, that's beautiful. I just, I just opened up my sole proprietorship um, just a couple weeks ago, actually. So I'm officially a business in Haastan. So now I'm paying taxes here. I'm not a citizen. I'm a resident, but, um, you know, I'm paying taxes here. I have a 10 year residency. These are the things I think that are are helpful as a diaspora to know when you're coming that these are the best ways To um, contribute, one is paying taxes, obviously. The other is giving something to the country that, um, you know, either it's lacking or it could just use more of, you know. Um, For example, the things I mentioned before, which I think are most important military strategy, um, energy sources, just any way that we can make an industry in Armenia unique. If we could sell power to Europe, if we could sell tech to Europe. And, and America. Um, things like that, I think are super helpful for the country. Of course, if you are an artisan, or you know, um, you're know, you a barber, or you're whatever, of course, move to Haston. Like, Honestly, it's great. You, Everybody should just move to Haston for a year just to see if they like it. But again, I'm not one to tell other people how to live. If you don't like it, if you're not happy, you shouldn't do something that doesn't make you happy. But this makes me very happy.
4: Yeah, well, that's a good way to live your life, right? Find what makes you happy. I think there's a, I personally feel like there's a natural something almost like that calls to us when we're in the homeland, when we're in Armenia, there's something that just feels right. Um, But I think, you know, having a test run with like birthright, for example, is a great way for people to see if they could handle it, experience what it's like to work and live in Hayastan as a normal citizen and not, you know, a tourist. But yeah, um, Blue, I, I really love talking to you. I wish we could talk more. However, I want to know uh, when is the documentary going to be out and where can people find that documentary?
5: Yeah, so the documentary will be out <clears throat> October 21st and it'll be out on YouTube and possibly Vimeo. I'm working on the Vimeo thing, but definitely on YouTube. So you'll be able to see it. Everyone can, can stream it from there.
4: Okay. So we're most likely going to tag you, but, um, would it be like under your YouTube account or what would it be? Uh? Uh,
5: yeah, it'll be under my YouTube, but I'll be posting like, the link will be in the bio of my Instagram. It'll be on all my social medias. You'll be able to find it easily. Um, but yeah, you can go to my, my YouTube as well. It's just blue calamian. Um, yeah.
4: Okay. Perfect, man. Thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. You know, I, again, I wish we could have, talk more in this instance but um no worries, you know this Thanks is gonna be big, absolutely
0: there's plenty we can do from the diaspora to support the development of armenian Artsakh, but these unprecedented times have brought about a crisis to the armenian nation that may require more from us now it's not enough to just send money, it's not enough to just post on social media. We need to do all that, and more. When Azerbaijan attacked in 2020, Hagupt Ipjan and his community in Cyprus helped start the Artsakh support body, which brings aid and investment to Artsakh. But as the challenges continued to stack up, and Artsakh became more and more vulnerable, he knew that working from a distance was not going to be enough.
1: thank you very much for accepting our invitation today. Uh, the first question I want to start with, um, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born and raised, where you got your education from, and where you are now?
2: Hi, Susanna. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I'm from Cyprus. I was born in Cyprus. I was in Cyprus until my uh, 17th. 17 years old, I just moved to the UK where I studied mm-hmm. and uh, where I work in the UK at least two years ago. When the war started, uh, I moved, I went to Cyprus, from Cyprus to Armenia mm-hmm. and from Armenia to Artsakh where I live and I plan to live.
1: Wow, that that's amazing. Um, once you moved to Arta, how did you decide on joining the government of the Republic of Arta? What prompted you to decide to move and work for Arta? And what are you doing there as the assistant of the state minister?
2: Okay, thank for your question. Well, um, <laughs> when uh, when I came when I came here, it was evident that you know there's uh, things that needed to be done, and uh, I believe that, you know, I can help and, you know, together we can, you know, make a change. So, um, uh, after a few meetings with the state minister, uh, it was evident that, you know, we can work together and uh, I started working uh, for Mr. Um I'm currently his advisor on humanitarian assistance uh, issues and also diaspora affairs. Um, I also run the humanitarian assistance department where we create projects and we also um, deal with the coordination of the humanitarian assistance that comes into
1: Artsakh. That's very impressive. Thank you for everything you're doing there. Um, so, did you get this position through the Igor's program, or how how did you land there?
2: Okay, so uh, I was already in Artsakh at, the, mm-hmm. at that moment, mm-hmm. uh, at that time, and uh, basically, um, after speaking to Mr. Baglarian and you know after him offering me you know a position, we had to kind of find out the formula on how you know I can stay in uh Artsakh and mm-hmm. uh because of you know laws as well and etc um he suggested together with uh, Mr. David Agopian, who was his first deputy and I think uh, um he's now uh, an advisor to the president if I'm not mistaken in Armenia mm-hmm. uh, together they suggested uh, we go through the Ecos program and uh, mm-hmm. They kind of did all the speaking and et cetera. And then, you know, we we went through the interview process and everything. So, yeah, e was uh, the program that kind of uh, funded and assisted me being here.
1: Um, yes, I learned about the Igor's program a while back, and it's wonderful how this initiative was established on, and how they're using the diaspora potential for the betterment of our state administration system. And I'm glad that you could benefit from it and that Armenia can benefit from you, or Artsakh in this case. Um now I want to go on and talk about what's happening in Armenia and what's happening in artakh. um I was talking to one of my friends, Arman, who repatriated and is now doing his master's at American University of Armenia. Uh, we've been doing research and analysis of the four UN Security Council resolutions for artakh trying to understand what the definitions of the terms and concepts used in the UN documents are. Um, now, following the quadrilateral meeting between Aliyev, Pashinyan, Macron, and Michelle, um, it was stated that the demarcation will be based on the OSCE principles adopted in 2017. Um, I tried to do some research and find out what these principles are or what they say, uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't find much information about it. Uh, But with these meetings happening, um, demonstration by Artsakh for their right to self-determination and our demands for Artsakh to be internationally recognized, how does all this impact your work right now?
2: Well, (laughs) yeah, of course. Um, All of that has an impact. Also, you know, the aggressions taken by the Azeris, you know, uh, a few weeks ago back in Chelmurk and, you know, Before that, here in Artsakh and et cetera. And, you know, all of that, of course, you know, uh, it makes, it makes us, it makes more, a little bit more complicated, if you like, at times. And, you know, um, uh, let me just say before, before I go into what you stated, what you're doing is very important. I I believe that, you know, uh, that work needs to be done Mm -hmm. because um, it's, it's sad that. You know, there's a lot of things that needed to be done, and now we're finding out, and you know, we're having to do retrospectively. I think, you know, we need to be proactive, and uh, that's what we're trying to at least, you know, uh, do in our department as well. Um, Anyway, going back to what you were saying, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of challenges, and you know, the international organizations. You know, it's only the ICRC here, and then we've got the MSF as well. Uh, no other organization, you know, international organization. Um, when I say international organization, I don't mean the Armenian organizations because the Armenian organizations are here and they're quite active. But, you know, we we need more. We, uh, you know, there's a lot a lot that needs to be done. Of and uh, the problems that, you know, we're facing is, you know, uh, obviously it's, it's hard to get into Artsakh, uh, you know, because... Most of our uh, Armenian, you know, uh, Armenians from the diaspora, they have, uh, you know, uh, other nationalities and etc. But you know, what we're trying to do from here is kind of when anyone, you know, shows willingness that they want to help and they want to assist in any shape or form, we try and facilitate that and you know try and coordinate it so it goes into the right, you know, into the right people to the right, uh, you know, because there's a lot that was was done in in the last 30 years and we feel that, you know, that all that needs to change because obviously, you know, everything shows us that, you know, everything that we've done was wrong. So hmm. it work.
1: Definitely. Um, can you, even though this was also about the challenges that you're facing, um, but since you started working for the Republic of Artsakh, what are the biggest challenges you have faced so far? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's just sometimes language uh, is a problem, you know. Uh, in the beginning, it was a problem. Now, you know, it's, uh, I fully understand Balbal, you know, but the use of the Russian language in a lot of uh, different, you know, um, documents and etc. That's produced. That's a bit, it's a, it's difficult for me because I don't know Russian. But uh, other challenges, the way you know, the, there's. There's a different mentality. You know, I, I used to work in London and now I'm in Artsakh. So it's a completely different way of, you know, working, different way of uh, dealing with things. You know, the, those are the challenges that I believe any um, diaspora that comes to Artsakh will have, but I don't think those are important challenges. The people, of course, you know, um, they welcome you. And um, and it's, it's because I speak to people, Uh, from uh, the ECOS program that they work in Armenia and, you know, I can see that I've been welcomed better than uh, them.
1: I wanted to ask what internal challenges is Artsakh facing right now? Because we know about the external challenges and um, the fact that we want self-determination and an international um, recognition. But what are some challenges that internally Artsakh is facing? Maybe lack of uh, workforce, uh, lack of um, people with different backgrounds and different educations and expertise.
2: Look, um, as as we like, you know, when, when we speak to people and et cetera, and they ask us what do you need as in, you know, uh, in experts and et cetera. we tell them we need experts from you know every single sector. Uh, this is the reality, okay, and uh, we recognize this, we know this, you know, uh, there's a low weakness. Uh, as I said, we need, you know, what we need from the diaspora is basically, it's, you know, we've divided it into seven sectors, if you like, what's, um, first of all, you know, it's um, do not damage, okay, as simple as that, so don't spread disinformation. Okay, uh, come and live in Artsakh if you can. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, we need we need people from the diaspora. Um, if you cannot come and live, come and visit Artsakh.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, or do business in Artsakh. Find something, find something that you can do here. Create, you know, um, create job positions, um, you know, pay taxes here in Artsakh. Mm-hmm. Um, do hard investment, donate. Uh, you know, find something that you know you can, uh, you know, you can help in. Um, six, is, you know, educate, capacity building. We we need you know um, we need people from the diaspora to train people here in to work. Uh, you know, in our way. Um, even even in my department, you know, a simple thing, working with emails, a very simple thing, and. You, you know, it's like uh, we had to kind of gradually roll it out, if you like, so people can start using emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the seventh and very important is raise awareness. Speak about Artsakh. Of course. Don't forget Artsakh.
1: Of course. Of course. Um, I was actually talking with my international law professor from University of California, Irvine, and um one thing he said was don't give up. And I said, oh, we cannot give up because it's about our existence. Um, and we're already uh, uh, on genocide watch. Uh, and he said, even if you continue doing the same things that were ineffective, that's going to be equal to giving up. And that was very powerful to me because now I realize mm-hmm. that once we find out that what we're doing is not effective and is not bringing about change, then we have to change our tactics and we have to try something else, and we have to continue trying and trying until we find a solution for our people.
2: So, Susanna, you know what, what's sad? Uh, it's like we were talking about becoming a state like Israel, and etc. And suddenly, we're becoming a state like Palestine. Yes.
1: yes. You know,
2: uh, the situation is very dire at the moment. You know, it's uh, you know, there's no sugar coating, but, mm-hmm. but there's hope. Of course, there's hope. And, uh, you know, you can see it, you can see the people yesterday, uh, you know, out in the streets, they, they want, they want to change, they want something that, you know. Uh...
1: Of course. And um, there's that famous Armenian saying that, the uh, um, So I, I think in this case, that is what it is. Uh, but also besides who is and hope, we have to actively work um, and um, take you as an example. Uh, and we have to do our part too. Um next I want to ask uh, about Off Support Body. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this organization and how it was established?
2: Um okay, it started during the war. Uh it was it started from Cyprus. Um oh. so <laughs> uh we did, you know, uh, quite a bit of work in <clears throat> in Cyprus gathering medical equipment and uh, different kind of donations from the Cypriot government, from uh, other Armenians, from uh, our Cypriot friends and etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of, you know, uh, we sent, we sent the stuff together with the community in Cyprus, the Armenian community in Cyprus, you know, everyone was working in unison uh, during the war in Cyprus. It was, you know, something, you know, I hadn't seen. So, <laughs> um, We came all together. We started working towards, um, you know, this idea. It it wasn't an organization in the beginning. It was just, you know, something that uh, between friends, you know, we had to give it a name so we can represent ourselves on the different boards uh, in Cyprus and everything. So that's how it kind of uh, started. And then uh, when we came to, when the war finished, uh, you know, we were convinced uh, that, you know, this can't, finish like this, you know, uh, you know, the last war was, it became even worse, you know, uh, we lost a lot more land and etc. So, you know, we sincerely believe that, you know, things will still continue. And because while waiting in Cyprus, you know, uh, (laughs) we had to come to Armenia as simple as that. So we came to Armenia and um, we kind of found out that, you know, there's different things happening with the different uh, stuff that the communities were sending. So we were quite worried and, you know, we had to quickly kind of make moves to ensure that everything that was sent ends up in our stuff where it was needed and, you know, why it was sent to begin with. So, um, you know... Uh, we met a few people. We met Shanta Chafian. Uh he guided us a lot. He helped us a lot with uh you know who to speak to, what to do, and etc. You know, how to find, you know, uh direction and everything. So he gave us direction and then from then onwards uh you know, we were in Yerevan. we quickly decided that okay, it's not gonna work here, there's you know, we need to get to Artsa. So two days later we we got to Artsakh um, and in the beginning, you know, we, it was purely a humanitarian, you know, uh, mission, if you like. It was making food parcels and uh, hygiene parcels and uh, giving, handing them out to families. We did uh, uh, also some checks uh, and uh, <laughs> together with Shant and on our own as well, <laughs> that was an experience. Um, And, of course, the greenhouses, which were bigger projects, the beehives, again, uh, other projects, bigger projects, and then some cultural events. And, uh, you know, uh, we were kind of seeing what the gap is or where we were needed and et cetera, where we felt that, you know, we need to kind of uh, do something. And uh, we were doing it in that way. Of course, uh, you know, we... We made a lot of contacts over the world uh, they helped us raise funds and uh, we, we still love, of course uh, have got active uh, projects we're doing uh, the medkit projects which uh, a friend of ours which uh, is also a member in our, our organization in the us is running it mm-hmm. uh he's doing an amazing work uh a is raising funds for the med kids, sending the med kids, making sure you know they're arriving to the right positions and etc. You know, uh, it's uh, it's been it's been a crazy two years to say the least. And uh, you know the the love and you know the also the um, support that we we're getting from Armenians from all around the world, but not only Armenians. Uh, I'll tell you this: uh, we've even got donations from Korea, from uh, Mali in Africa. Wow. um it's it's been it's been yeah it's been
1: that's amazing
2: mad. yeah
1: um uh, what about after the recent war in september the uh, mode um a ministry of defense urged armenians to stop collecting food clothing money for servicemen how has this impacted your work with Artsakh support body are you now more concentrated on the humanitarian side of things
2: uh, t- to be honest, look, um, we were concentrating on Artsakh, our main, our main uh, if you like, yes, we've helped, uh, we've sent a few things to Armenia, and you're know, in the front lines of Armenia and everything, but uh, our work is mainly concerned in Artsakh, and in Artsakh, there's, we always need things, it's, it's crazy how, you know, uh, especially with the Armenian troops, you know, gradually coming out and everything, it's, uh, you know, we need everything here. It's, uh, it's a little bit different the situation here. There's not a lot of organizations that kind of concentrate on that, and to be honest, there's not a lot of organizations that that have the flexibility to be able to kind of, okay, take a decision and kind of quickly, you know, work towards that.
1: I see. Thank you for that information, um, Hakob. I wanted to ask, um, how can the how can we support your work from the diaspora? So some of us who cannot be there, um, but we still want to contribute to um, to the betterment of Artsakh and Armenia. What can we do to help you?
2: Look, I think it's. Um... You know, as I, as I was saying before, capacity building, you know, I've mentioned that word a few times, you know, since we started. And I think, uh, you know, in try and train people because that's the easiest way. If you, if you can't, you need to come to Artsakh. If you can't come to Artsakh, you know, there's other ways that you can help. And one of the ways, you know, design a project, even if it's, uh, English or Excel or, you know, what something that, you know, they can use in their everyday Day-to-day work life, create a project that you think that you know it's going to work, and you know I'm sure you know that th- there are ways as long as you think of something, and uh, believe me, you know they can they can always get in touch with us. We've got about thirty-five projects that you know um, they're in the pipeline, but because you know. Uh, we don't have uh, sufficient government funding, and etc. We need to wait, you know, and we need to kind of re-examine them in the next year when the budget gets voted again, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if if there's, you know, we can make suggestions. Our department, you know, uh, one of the things that we do is, you know, we assess the needs and then we create projects out of the needs. That, you know, talking with the different ministries and everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, you can always get in touch with me. You know, I'll try and assist. You know, there's no bad idea. All ideas are welcome, and mm-hmm. you know we can work and try and help because you know. But as I said, um, if you can come, that's that's a lot of help. Even if you can come, as you know, just visit. You don't need to come and live here. You can come and visit.
1: Right. Right. Of course. Um, I actually met with, I had the honor of meeting with um, Dr. David Babayan last week uh, uh-huh. with ANCA's grassroots conference, and um, I approached him a couple of times and I told him the same thing. I asked him, um, I want to help out uh, my bachelor's degrees in international relations. Um, I want to help out. And he asked me to get in touch with him and I did. And I'm hoping that I, there will be a way for me to help even from the United States, Um and hopefully we'll see how that goes and if I can contribute in some ways. Um, I wanted to ask you, Hakob, if you have any message for the diaspora, especially you being in diaspora in Armenian and now living in Artsakh and working for Artsakh. What's your message to all of us here, living here or other parts of the world?
2: I think, uh, you know, my message throughout, you know, uh, our talk has been come to Artsakh, we need, we, need to, we need to be here, we need to see how people work, what they do, and believe me, once you're here, you think of, you know, things will come to you as how you can help, because mm-hmm. believe me, there's, in every sector, we need help, in every single sector, and I'm not exaggerating, and uh, these are copy-paste words that, you know, Ardak was saying a few days ago at the Abri Festival, so you know, at the Abri uh, convention, so uh, <laughs> we need we need to be we need to come, we need to visit, we need to see how how things are and invest. As uh, simple as that. And don't ne- don't stop talking about Artsakh because mm-hmm. uh, what people need to kind of understand that uh, Armenia without Artsakh or Artsakh without Armenia it's inconceivable. We need we need to get that through. That's uh, you know. Regardless of how we see it, regardless of how we think about it, without Artsakh there's no Armenia, and without Armenia there's no Artsakh, as simple as that.
0: All of our guests today decided their purpose was to be in Armenia, in Artsakh, physically. To not just connect and work with the people there, but to work with us as well, the Armin's around the world. To act as a bridge to the diaspora, a channel to connect us with the people and work that's going on right now. To help make sense of the day-to-day developments and issues. Gevi Skadjan, who was one of Hytuk very first guests in Episode 1, The Struggle for Artsakh, is now living in Stepanagerd, where he helped establish and now manages the ANC Artsakh office. What is the mission of ANC Artsakh, and how do we play a part? in the grand strategy of Haithad and Artsakh's future. So, Gev, welcome back to the show. Last time we spoke, uh, or last time you were on, it was the struggle for Artsakh episode, right when the war had started. And now you're living in Stepanagerd. Um, you're the representative to the, the the new ANC Artsakh office in Stepanagerd. Gev, welcome back.
6: It's good to be back on,
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear your voice. I'm happy to hear you're doing well and you seem uh, like you're holding down the Ford and everything. Um, uh, and I'm sure, you know, things are stressful and busy at the moment. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, having the time to speak with us today. It's a pleasure. So uh, ANC Artsakh is a new office. Uh, ANC has expanded to Artsakh. Can you tell us a little bit about the objectives and the goals of ANC Artsakh?
6: Yeah. So for those that are unaware, uh, the ANC is a very large global organization. We have offices in the United States, uh, from the United States anywhere to the UK, to multiple offices in Europe, to places like Egypt, Lebanon, Yerevan, and beyond. Um, I'm happy to say that ANC Artsakh is the newest member of this global family. Um, We strive for uh, lofty goals, I would say. Uh, That's the independence and recognition of Artsakh. And at the same time, uh, to uphold, maintain, and fight for the rights of the citizens living here on the ground
0: and give your role uh, specifically as representative, you know, what are your day-to-day kind of activities? um, uh, What are you up to specifically these days?
6: So we serve as a communication hub between Mm -hmm. uh, the ANC Artsakh office and all of our chapters around the world. We work in tandem and in unison with uh, multiple branches So, for example, we'll work with our DC office to update them on what's going on here. They recently had a a conference based around Artsakh. Uh, We gave a talk there, helped coordinate some stuff. Um, And we also uh, keep in touch with uh, multiple branches, for example, our Australia branch, our Canada branch. And um, we work to keep them informed, keep them engaged, and we work to serve and feed them information in Real time. Um, things move here very quickly. Um, we need to mobilize our global communities. And the only way that we can do that is when we have a really strong relationship with Artach and the rest of the world. And that's one of our biggest priorities. Yeah. Secondly, we're, yeah, go ahead
0: no i couldn't agree more give i mean that's that's kind of our hopes today too by talking with you and uh, with others from artsakh and spreading that message as well you know to help spread the communication of what's going on there so but continue please
6: of course so we also have a lot of actionable items and programs so we work to establish sister city and sister town projects with different places around the world um recently uh marduni and uh Glendale became a sister Mm -hmm. uh, city. We want to expand that into multiple other places. So we're looking into establishing uh, sister city programs with places like Martaket, with places like Stepanaket, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of bring about more exposure uh, in civil society in different parts of the world.
0: Yeah. I mean we we tend to think of Artsakh as this isolated place and I see what you know the point of this is kind of to help connect Artsakh to the greater you know community the world other diasporas you know so that uh it's not just a strategic and survival thing you know but it's you know um it uh, it's a lot. living
6: breathing entity that
0: exactly works exactly it's a real society that's connected to the rest of the world um and, and i'm very happy to see that you know that's part of the work that you guys are doing um so what are some maybe other uh are, are you guys working in tandem with the government or other organizations out there um you know uh, yes yes tell me about it
6: so so we work uh, we work uh Closely, and we have a very good relationship with you know different sectors of life in Arta, um, even on a governmental level. So we are in always in close contact with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who we're very happy to. Uh, m- many folks might already know we're uh, happy to work with. They have recently just sent a delegation. The Foreign Minister David Babayan was in uh, DC. Uh, alongside the ANCA on Mm -hmm. Capitol Hill Mm -hmm. and we work to you know create more opportunities uh, like that
0: right because I mean the the ANCA, ARF, AYF, Global and all their sister organizations I mean it's a it's a solid large web of organizations and uh, communities and uh, you know resources and it, it 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 seems like it acts as an extra, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, system or an additional uh, source of, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for?
5: Yeah. So
6: you know. definitely, I think that we're strengthened um, by our sister organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we have a program alongside the AYF internship in Artsakh, in which uh, interns from around the world. We just had our first uh, you know, inaugural internship program a few months ago, I'm really happy to say, mm-hmm. um, where we had interns from the East Coast, the West Coast, people from uh, Moscow, people from uh, uh, France that have come here to do internship programs at the ANC Artsakh office. And this uh, not only strengthens us because we bring in really talented and passionate young youth that want to connect to Artsakh. Um, and along with them, they bring their skill sets. Um, but additionally, we help serve as a bridge between the people, the life, the society here, um, and all of these amazing young diasporan youth that want to come here, that want to get a better understanding of how the governance process is run, how we advocate for the rights of the people here, how we push forth uh, our goals. Yeah. So I would say it's a really symbiotic relationship where we as an ANC Artsakh office um, and Artsakh itself, you know, mm-hmm. is a benefactor. And so are all of these amazing young youth that yeah. I hope, you know, get life-changing like uh, insight into This land, these people, this movement.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And it's amazing. And I spoke with some of the interns that were there this summer. I mean, it was, uh, it it definitely moved them and, you know, they haven't stopped talking about it and they're some of the most active members of our community. Um, and, uh. What was I going to say? But it's crazy to think, you know, you know, in most of our minds, in the diaspora, it's dangerous there. It's scary uh, that all these things are happening, and it is true. um, But the, you know, I'm so proud or so happy to see that you know we can still run a program like this successfully with no problems, essentially, and uh, and uh, people could still have this experience and give back and take away. um, And I'm very happy to see that. I mean, uh, Gev, since you've moved there. I mean, you've been there for how, how many months now, would you say? Six, seven months, eight months?
6: Eight months. Yeah, that's great. Yes.
0: And how was adjusting there? Uh, you know, uh, has uh, ha- I'm sure life's been not easy there, but, you know, how would you describe your experience so far?
6: Well, first, I, I think it's important to say that everything that I've gotten out of this experience has been a privilege. Uh, I, I don't consider it, you know, a sacrifice moving here. Uh, I've gained much, much more than I could, you know, ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of adjusting, the people here are amazing. They yeah. open you with welcome arms. Uh, and they, they, they become very excited when they see that the diaspora is, is interested is with in them. a viable future for Artsakh. And mm-hmm. that the diaspora sees a future in Artsakh. And that the diaspora is... Ah, uh, you know, willingly jumping in to work hand in hand with the amazing people here on the ground to make sure that we have this homeland, to make sure that it stays Armenian, to make sure that it has a bright future.
0: Hell yeah, no, I, I love that, um, and I can say that you know, every time I've been to Artsakh, it's been probably the highlight of my experience in Armenia, and uh, the people there have always been the best. Um, and I'm, you know, really hoping I get to go back soon. So, uh, but outside of, let's say outside of ANC work, you know, how else do you stay busy? Are you working on any other projects? Um, what's life uh, like outside of uh, ANC uh, in terms of work and
6: activism? So, uh, I I think a big part of you know what I'm trying to do here, in, let's say my off time is to get a better sense uh, of everything. I'm using this as an educational opportunity for myself mm-hmm. to learn more about our people, the culture here, the systems of governance and what can be made better, what can be you know tweaked and what we as diasporans could add on to it. Yeah. I'm also really happy to say that there's I'm not the only diasporan here in mm-hmm. There There's a few others that are doing amazing work through, you know, our sister uh, organizations and on top of that through you know newly created organizations that help bring in funds bring in cultural programs and whatever yeah. uh, they may um so it, it's been uh it, it's been a privilege to work alongside them additionally I, I work here with you know the uh armenian news federation the Artax, uh armenian news federation and mm-hmm. they also have an amazing hamas guy in office here that Uh, puts forth cultural programs uh from dances to singing lessons to even like weekly art lessons that they have free for the kids here um and those are just some of you know the programs that we like to keep in touch with to be collectively working on
0: excellent um so now to take it a little bit back to the you know the geopolitics of it all um you know And the Artsakh delegation was just in D.C., uh, in L.A. Um, You know, uh, they're talking to these uh, legislators. And as, you know, for most of us listening uh, as U.S. citizens, um, what should we be keeping an eye out for? What should we be pushing for in D.C. right now with our government in regards to Artsakh?
6: So uh, I think first and foremost, it's really important that we have representatives from Artsakh going to other nations, um, mm-hmm. because what we want to show the world that Artsakh is a self-determined state, that it has representation on a governmental level. And what better way to do that than to, you know, have the elected, appointed representatives of the state, the, the state body of Artsakh, go to these foreign nations and speak on behalf of other uh, on behalf of the people of Artsakh, mm-hmm. right? Because oftentimes we have, and this is a problem we run into, we have so many uh, parties and factors, uh, yes, other governmental organizations speaking on behalf of Artsakh. But what we want is the people of Artsakh to have their own self-determined voice heard. Um, so I think that's a really important step. And I think that, you know, the ANC out there in the United States is t- taking a, leadership position and you know starting that type of movement yeah. um you
0: know you you'd imagine yeah. give that the armenian government or you know maybe some other body but especially the armenian government would be the one bringing alongside them the representative of artsakh you know in their meetings when they come to dc and you know all i'm trying to say is it's it's you know I, i'm always again so happy that our uh, that the ANC and other organizations you know they you know they put artsakh first like this they 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 carry through and they they help uh, facilitate these kind of things it's it's so important where we see that lacking in other places you know uh, um, and then, yeah, sorry to cut you off. Uh, other things for us to you know, keep an eye out for uh, in D.C. right now? So specifically,
6: yeah. I think specifically for the United States, it's very important. We have a few goals here. One, we want to cut off all military aid to Azerbaijan, uh, about $100 million a year. It's a tune of that amount uh, gets sent to Azerbaijan In terms of military aid. Now, that is like exponentially more than Artsakh gets in any type of aid. Uh, And we're talking about much, much uh, larger sums. We want to see that cut off because that money gets used to commit war crimes, uh, to, uh, you know, bring upon violence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, to bring upon violence and. The destruction of the people yeah. here, and we're obviously against that. And as Armenian Americans, we should be, you know, yeah, staunchly against that.
0: My tax, my taxes are funding the death of Artsakh, which is ridiculous. I, that's it's it's so shameful. I mean, it's uh, you know, we don't want to f- say that we're responsible, but in a way, like if we don't get this passed and we don't, you know, get them to stop sending funds, you know, uh, it's on our hands too. And uh, yeah. I yeah. So what is that? It's Section nine hundred seven, right?
6: Yes, it's Mm -hmm. Section 907. You can go to the ANCA.org website and you can sign up to be a rapid responder um, Mm -hmm. in which they will forward emails, uh, you know, on your behalf to uh, Congress members, senators, legislators uh, on these important issues. And I would say that, you know, this isn't just a... Uh, a moot exercise. Uh, uh, looking at the statements, the actions yes. uh, recently of this government of the U.S. government, we're seeing a much stronger, much more you know uh, pro-OTAC stance from certain legislators and segments of the American government than we've ever seen before. No, now, I we very much agree sure that it's. I've yeah, seen. Yeah.
0: I've seen a difference for sure this time around.
6: Yeah, and and we'll, we obviously you know those statements are very good; they're very strong. We obviously need to make sure that they are actionable, right? Yes. So, our work has to be that we see the government carry through with these words, um, and that can only happen with the pressure and the support of Armenian Americans, like the folks listening to I Duke Talks right now.
0: Yeah. No, um, it's. Uh, I was going to ask you. It is pretty interesting to see. I mean, it sucks that it has to go through two wars and all this violence and all this, you know, pain for them to, you know, the international community, the western politicians to really finally get out of this both-sidest kind of attitude about the issue Um, uh, but you know, it's it's still in this whole geopolitical reality we live in uh, and the pessimism exists of, you know, what can be done, but at the very least you know, we can get I, I feel pretty good about us being able to push Congress to, to cut off this military aid at least, you know, and then continue to create ties to Artsakh, create a, you know, increased communication and uh, and see what else we can do. I mean, uh, Gev, what would you, you know, in a, you know ANC work, lobbying work, DC work aside, um, what would be your message to the diaspora um, uh, in regards to Artsakh and its future?
6: I would say Artsakh needs us now uh, more than ever. Um, We're fighting an existential battle here. Mm -hmm. This is uh, about what happens in in terms of the future and the destiny of these people. And we, as an entire generation of diasporans, will one day, you know, let's say 20, 30, 50 years down the line, look back at this pivotal time and say, what did we do? Um, And that what did we do? That question will either lead to, you know, we lost Artsakh or today, you know, I'm talking about 30, 40, 50 years down the line. We have an independent Artsakh. We have a free Mm Artsakh. We have an Artsakh that is not subjugated to violence on the daily. Um, And I think we will be playing an important part in that. So it will either be through action, which we, we will see positive results or through apathy, which we won't see any results. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that the diaspora will take the actionable stance. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, uh, and seeing, and I'd love for, you know, to see many of us also make the move out there and be on the ground. And I hope people do feel inspired to do so, um, you know, but there's plenty of work to be done in addition to that. And, uh, and Gev. a, uh, you know i appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today
6: i appreciate you guys covering this subject i appreciate the work that high talk does uh to keep our communities informed mm-hmm. and i look forward to you know uh these continued relationships between Artsakh and all the entities in the diaspora that exist
0: Tebi Artsakh, Tebi as they say. This is a call for repatriation. Times like these make me feel like repatriation might be the only chance we have for the Republic of Armenia and Artsakh's salvation and longevity. Life will be a struggle wherever you are, and life in the homeland has its share, but by simply living your life in Artsakh and Armenia, by working, paying taxes, building community and family, all the same things you do here or will do here, you can not only accomplish your own personal ambitions, but you will for sure be serving the Armenian nation in a greater capacity than you will from the diaspora. We know it's difficult for many of us to do so, as are our responsibilities in life, people around us in our own diaspora communities that rely on us, friends and family who need us as well. So if you can't repatriate, then make sure you do more for the cause than you are now, enough to make up for the fact that you and I can't be there right now with Gev, with Blue, Shant, and Hagop, and the rest of our brothers and sisters in Armenia and Artsakh. To connect and follow with the guests we had today, make sure to find the links in our description and social media to follow, support, and be a part of our collective efforts to build a safe and peaceful future for Artsakh and Armenia. You are listening to Hytuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Hayk Minasyan. And I'm Haru Bird.
1: And I'm Susanna Abrahamian.
0: And we're just a couple of Armenians talking talking in in the the world.
2: world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.